You are listening to the Holy Cannoli Podcast. It's all about making sense of life, who we are, and why we're here. Life is sacred and life is strange. And here's our dad, Tony Gapastone. All right. Hey, Holy Cannoli, we have, I think this is episode 34. I better check before I actually announce that, but I'm pretty sure we're on episode 34 of Holy Cannoli, and I'm actually in the Brave Maker offices today. No, it's episode 35. Episode oh. 35, and I have special guest today, Kara Meredith. And here's the beautiful part of this conversation, that this conversation is a product of social media. So I met Kara through my friend Bethany Fiddleston, who I met through seminary, who we're mostly like Twitter friends now because she moved away from the seminary and I'm not in seminary anymore. And so she had listened to our podcast a couple times and said, Kara would be great to be on the podcast. So welcome Kara Meredith to Holy Cannoli. Yeah. And shout out to Bethany as well. She and I also met through Fuller. Oh gosh. Awesome. So she... Wait, did you go to Fuller? I did. Oh, yeah. right on. Fuller up here north? Uh, Kind of. It was hybrid of Fuller here, online Fuller or? in Northwest, in the Northwest, Fuller online, Fuller IDLs back in the day, individual distance yeah. learning. Cool. It awesome. was the eight year plan. Right. On. I did the nine year plan. Good job. Okay. I took hey, two years off in between. <laughs> we, we finished. Jeez. That's all that counts. We can say uh, we have our master's It's embarrassing, but yeah, totally. I don't like, you do what yeah. you have to do to crawl through is what I did. I feel like I crawled through very to the, to the very end. Absolutely. One class at a time <sighs> while working full time and or potentially raising babies yes, or whatever it was. Many. Mm-hmm. Yes. Did you ever have a class with uh, Daniel Kirk? Love him. Okay. Yeah. All right, Still Daniel. Still one of my friends. Have you had him on this? Yes. He's. A, I was going to say, he's Episode a great... Episode 13. Yeah. Okay. He's a great conversationalist. Daniel was very provocative in the conversation, and we've got lots of requests to bring him back on. But yeah, he's the only professor that ever gave me a C, so I called, had to call him out on that on the podcast, yeah. which was very fun and awkward. But yeah, he's great. Oh, I love it. I love him. <laughs> Okay, so we always start the podcast with a very simple yet profound question, and we'll jump into your book and kind of why you're here, is how would you describe who you are and why you're here like on planet Earth? Who is Kara Meredith, and what's your mission? What are you up to? What are you doing? Why are you here? Absolutely. Great question. Um, and I love it because you're not technically asking what do you do for a living. <laughs> you're kind of asking what do you do during the day. What's your life like? What's, What's your mission? What's your yeah. life like? Yeah. But it's bigger than that. Yeah. Um, and so in that way, I would encompass who I am both relationally and professionally. So relationally, I'm a friend. I'm a wife. I'm a mother. Uh, professionally, I'm a writer. I'm a speaker. I recently started adding to my bio. I'm a conversationalist. Oh, I like that one. Um because one of the things we're really trying to do, especially around the book, and we can talk more about this, but we're trying to have conversations and talk about the things mm-hmm. that we need to be talking about that we're not always talking about. Mm-hmm. And so specifically, as a white woman, what does it mean to engage in issues of justice, race, and privilege? That means coming coming alongside my brothers and sisters of color and sitting down and having real, honest conversations that are not curated by me. I'm not the one in charge. But we're sitting there and we're talking about things that are kind of uncomfortable. So in a sense, I feel like I'm um, part Krista Tippett. um, And my job is just to listen and learn right now and part conversationalist so that other people can enter into those conversations. And are you doing those on a tour? Are you doing those through churches? How does that actually look like in your life? 
all of the above. Uh -huh. So we had our first event this last Saturday. You can check out my website, karameredith.com uh -huh. backslash speaking. Uh -huh. um, but these events are happening all over the Bay Area. Um, we're excited, potentially excited to have some on the peninsula as well. So if you're local to Tony, um, would love to birth some of those here on the peninsula. We're looking at one potentially at Stanford, potentially um, in Foster City, potentially a little farther north on the peninsula, but otherwise all over the Bay Area. Um, I'll then be in Seattle the weekend, the week of uh, the weekend of March eighth through the tenth. Portland the last week of March. Mississippi, uh, the second weekend of April. So a lot of these are just it's it's been working with different friends and connections and saying, okay, who wants to have a conversation and what mm -hmm. person who is local to that community um, might I be able to have a conversation with? Mm -hmm. That's really cool. And so just to jump in, so this started like this passion didn't all of a sudden fall into your lap. You aren't you aren't just kind of doing a tour because you are passionate about it, about the topic of race and listening and conversation. It happened through relationship, right? That's how your whole conversation and like the why you are here, I think, started, which I love. So let's kind of dig into the color of life, which is the name of your book, and how the passion to have these conversations even started. Absolutely. Uh, so um, back in the day, I met my husband. We met on an online site. eHarmony. eHarmony.com. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Neil Clark Warren. Um, I had, for the record, checked out. I mean, at, at that point, Tinder wasn't really around. I had tried out Match. I think at one point I even tried out Christ, Christian Mingle, but there just wasn't any Single mingling. Single and mingling. I love it. Single, the Christian, ready to single, mingle. Yep. I, I tried it all. Um, but... Um, I met my husband and, and there were, there were certainly all of us have a story. And, and so my story is long and varied and nearly 40 years old. But, um, when my husband and I met, it was essentially the power of love that helped me see color. And, um, I am a white woman. He is a black man. Uh, his father was a big part of the civil rights movement is an historical figure, um, we met and married and fell in love. And along the way, I began to realize that, um, that there was a whole lot I didn't know that I needed to learn and embrace. And so when we talk about relationships, I mean, the, the crux of the story is relationship. Um, the, my book has been rewritten so many times, uh, but the, that which you are now reading and that your listeners might read, um, really, it's, it begins with a love story. And it builds on that. Um, and so all of it does come back to relationships. And when we talk about having these conversations, um, the, the greatest hope I have for my book is that people will read it and then enter into the conversations that they're not having. Mm -hmm. and, and for those of us who are white, that means noticing our privilege and doing something about our privilege, laying down our privilege. That means stepping into conversations that are hard and that might feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. because we're not necessarily supposed to feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. But that means also ultimately bringing healing and holing, wholeness and justice to all of us um, because we're humans and we're all deserving of that. And so, and maybe that can only happen through relationships. It's interesting. You're pretty transparent in the book mm -hmm. and you talk about the idea of white privilege and having conversations with your folks around this. And mm -hmm. I'm just curious, when did you start to notice that this was something that you had a blind spot with? Absolutely. 
Um, I really, I honestly don't think I probably started to notice until my 20s. And even then, my privilege was not around noticing um, issues that had to do with the color of my skin. Really, my privilege, um, noticing privilege began more so even in the church. It began with noticing the privilege that happened, especially in more conservative evangelical culture um, around men and women. Mm. It had, it, there began a noticing around education. Um, there began a noticing um, around class especially when it came to some of the kids that I worked with in ministry. Um, but when it came to actually noticing privilege as it relates to the color of one's skin, uh, I don't think that probably um, fully happened until my 30s. Uh, but privilege is not does not just have to do with the color of someone's skin. Mm-hmm. Obviously, privilege has to do with all these different facets. Mm-hmm. And so for me and for you and probably for your listeners, it is a journey of noticing that privilege. And, and I think in that way, there's probably different um, steps to noticing. Mm-hmm. But as far as it goes growing up, um, I didn't think I had privilege. I, I, I didn't, I, we weren't super rich. I paid for my college education. I paid for my seminary education. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I drove a $400 Chevy Love um, when Love. I turned 16, nice. LUV, it was oh awesome. Gosh, it had, nice. yeah, it was rusted out. The bottom was rusted out. You could, we actually had, um, those little carpets covering the floor. And could if you, you actually see, up, the you could ground. see the ground? Oh yeah. Like yeah. the Flintstones you could put your feet through. So, and yeah, sort of, we yeah. fully called nice. it the Flintstone mobile. It nice. was a little scary, uh, to actually step foot in it. But, yeah. um, but all that to say, I didn't think that, that I was privileged, mm-hmm. um, mostly because of the money that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. There was a, a story in your book, though, I think in middle school, you were talking mm-hmm. about noticing or hearing the word colorblind. Mm-hmm. Can you you know, talk about that a little bit when you reflect back on that and what that means for you today and how you were kind of picking things up for people of color even back mm-hmm. then that would have been difficult? Absolutely. So uh, one of the stories I tell from early on um, happened uh, in the fourth grade, actually. Um, I remember going to a school assembly and I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, but this is something that happened across the um, American educational system. Yeah. Um, and that is in reaction to the civil rights movement and essentially to blatant racism, school districts and churches both across our country started adopting what many people call a, a colorblind rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they said, okay, if we're not going to be racist, then we're going to do the opposite. We can't be racist, so we're going to do the opposite. We're going to be colorblind. We therefore aren't going to be see color. So I remember sitting in this school assembly in Salem, Oregon, and our principal being up front, and with all 600 of the students there leading us in a school-wide chant, in an, in an assembly chant, um, in which he shouted, we are colorblind. Mm. And the rest of us all shouted back, we are colorblind. And I didn't think anything of it sure. because that's what I was taught to do, again, both in the school and in church. But as I reflected back on it, I remember thinking, what would it have been like, even if we were in a mostly white or European-American environment, what would it have been like to be a kid of color sitting right there? Because there were kids of color that I grew up alongside. And so what would it have been like to be sitting there and to be shouting that and to then not be seen? Mm-hmm. Or just for that to be the message. Yeah. 
And I think I wonder too, good intentions, right? There's mm-hmm. some good intentions behind that. And even now there might be some listeners thinking, wait, what is wrong with that? Shouldn't we, mm-hmm. aren't we more than our skin color? Aren't we all humans? You know, I've mm-hmm. heard this conversation around race that we're the human race. So let's elevate it, you know, above our ethnic, our ethnic race, but let's move it to a place of like, we're all just human and try to find collaboration and connection there, which I think, again, there's some good heartedness to it, but from what we're hearing as we have evolved as a people in, in culture, people of color are saying, but I am, this is my skin color. Just like someone who is gay would say, this is my sexuality. This is my identity. And you can't erase that by saying, but your identity is in God. And, and so I think there's something to be said about learning. So I don't know, how would you speak to that listener today based on all the things that we'll get to that you've learned about being sensitive to people of color and having raised, raising two boys of color and being married to a man of color. How have you, how would you communicate to the listener who's going, wait, I'm not sure I understand what, what's wrong with being colorblind or using that language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite stories in scripture, if I can say this to you and your listeners, mm-hmm. um, is when Jesus interacts with the woman at the well. And, you know, for a long time, I looked at that story and I would read that story and I would, I would teach that story as far as, um, in, t- in terms of essentially this really bad, sinful woman who had had way too much sex, who therefore was not allowed to be out um, in public uh, when the other women were there drawing water. And instead, um, and, and so, but, but then somehow the, the mercy of Jesus intersected with her and, and she walked away changed. And so I only saw it as a sin issue. And, and as I've studied that and looked into that story in particular over the years, I've realized how much Jesus elevates her and elevates the particularities of who she is. And he, in doing that, he elevated the particularities of her sexuality. He elevated the particularities of her gender. He elevated the particularities of her race and culture in the sense that she was a Samaritan woman and he was a Jewish man and they were not supposed to interact. Mm-hmm. But he gave her dignity. And so... When I talk with um, all of my brothers and sisters, and especially though when I talk with my white brothers and sisters, and and they are maybe at a point of wrestling with all lives matter versus black lives matter. Right, good distinction, yes. um, I sit here and I come back to the fact that yes, every single life matters, and yes, all lives matter. But until we are able to show full dignity like Jesus did with the Samaritan woman, to every single person, Mm -hmm. we have to say Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And so until I can be guaranteed that my sons, who are mixed race, who are children of color, are able to to go and thrive in the school system with their brown skin, until and unless that happens, I have to continue to um, say... Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. I have to continue to show dignity to my black and brown brothers and sisters at the same time while simultaneously believing that I am just as much worthy of dignity, that every single one of us, no matter the color of our skin, is just as much worthy mm-hmm. of justice and wholeness and peace because that is what we deserve as humans. Mm-hmm. I I'm very active on social media and I remember having a conversation if you can have conversations and Mm -hmm. I believe you can on social media there 
it, it can be hard, but we can do it. And I'm trying to surface some of these things and just get yeah. feedback. But I remember someone co- commenting around a Black Lives Matters uh, post, hey, Tony, you don't have to apologize for your whiteness. You don't mm-hmm. stop trying to be sorry that you're white. And I was really, that's really an interesting mm-hmm. take or perspective because I don't think that's what these movements are trying to say to us as white people is that we should feel bad. But it is something for us to like what you just said to look at to what does it look like to be valued or not valued based on skin color. And those of us, I don't, I mean, I, don't, I can't help the way I was born, mm-hmm. but I do want to surface conversations that make us think about do we value and demean other people based on the skin? And the, the reality is yes. Mm-hmm. And maybe you don't, maybe your mom and dad didn't, but somewhere along the line, people in our culture did, and we have to take responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to apologize for our skin color, but we can apologize that this was someone else's experience. And I think that conversation that you're surfacing is really a, a part of that. And I really, I love that. I appreciate it. I think this book is a, a necessary part of the conversation moving forward, especially being someone who's white mm-hmm. and a woman, you have your experience. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to hear more about like, as you and James, your husband mm-hmm. were courting and dating. And, I don't know uh, if I would call it courting. <laughs> I think that you might've used very... that. You might've used Did that. Really? And you said something like your, your roommate was like, I have a date, you know, he's courting me or something. You were being oh, silly. You were being fun. <laughs> something to that effect. I think I read it there. Um, when you were becoming smitten with him, I think smitten. you even used. There we go. Yeah. Look at those um, verbs. What's some of the things that surfaced for you in presenting him to your dad at the macaroni grill, mm-hmm. which by the way, I'm super sad the macaroni grill doesn't <gasps> exist anymore. Really? Was All, that was just uh, locally or nationwide? I, I know locally because I imagine, was it here in yeah, um, San Mateo? San Mateo, it's gone. <gasps> yeah. Stop. They had this, the great, this great bow tie pasta dish. But when I was reading that, I was like, oh, macaroni grill is not there anymore. But talk wow. about that's where your, your parents met your... Your, your then boyfriend, yeah. future husband. Mm-hmm. And there were some things that even happened in the conversation there, right? Can you talk about that? Absolutely. I love that uh, you've only read the first half of the book. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, oh, there, yeah, you can delete this part. So there, <laughs> never, okay. No, come Hold on. on. We're talking about, what are we talking about here? We're Just talking things about my that dad. surfaced, like with your parents and. Yeah. You know, when, when James and I, um, when we, uh, we we were fast and furious. I mean, I probably yeah. How used... long did you guys date? Because I well, thought like it was um, eHarmony set us up in September. We mm-hmm. met for the first time in October. Okay. We had eleven dates in fourteen days. Okay. Um, in the first so in the first two weeks that we actually met in person. Um, by by Thanksgiving, um, he told me that he wanted to marry me. And, and at that point, I didn't even know. I was like, I was like, hey, are, are we dating other people? Do you have anybody else in your hopper? What's going on? Yeah. Um, he didn't. His hopper was empty, except for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by Christmas, that's when my parents met him, which was uh, two and a half months later after first meeting each other in person for the first time. Uh, it was one of those they knew who his father was. Um, because his they, father was a very famous civil rights activist. Absolutely. Yeah. And they were teenagers of the 60s, and so they were very privy uh-huh. to the news um, and to everything that had been happening in that time period. Do you have that picture, by the way? I mean, I'm sure you could Google it, but isn't there like a famous picture where your father-in-law is with Martin Luther King? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. We could we could www.google it right yeah, now. Yeah, that's awesome. We're gonna, we'll put it up on the Facebook page so you yeah, can check it out. Yeah, please do. Yeah, so... Um, my when, by the time my parents met him, uh, I had wondered, um, 
you know, I, I had wondered what will it be like, um, for James, if this really is the man that I marry, what will it be like for him to be the first black man to marry into my family? What will it be like for me to be the first white woman to marry into his family? Mm-hmm. And, um, I had remembered my mom and this is a conversation later in the book, but, um, I remembered my mom when I was probably 12 or 13 years old saying to me, you know, Kara, we will, we will support any, anyone that you bring home. But, um, I worry if you bring if you if you bring home a black man at 13 um, years old that was a conversation. Yep. Uh, I worry about that because I worry um, about your children and what mm. that would mean for your future children. And she and I later, I mean we dissected it. She later apologized profusely. It stemmed from her having um, been in love with a black man who said those words to her. Um, this was prior to my dad. So um So for me, all that to say, really at the very beginning with my parents, especially, they were just stoked that their daughter was finally getting married. I was the last of the kids. I'm the oldest of my siblings and I was the last to get married. You know, I think they, by the time I hit 30 and wasn't married, they they were going, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on with this girl? How can you not get married in your twenties in the Christian (laughs) community or something? I know. It's like everything Joshua Harris told us not to damn. Did you kiss dating goodbye? Is that why? No, which is why when you said courting earlier, I was like, hails no. Hmm." (laughs) Thank you, Joshua Harris, for all the reparations you are making He did take that back. That's right. He is. He took it back. He's on his own little tour. Listeners, you could do your little Google search on Joshua Harris and see that he had a very popular book in the 90s mm-hmm. that... I Kissed Dating Goodbye. That's right, yeah, that mm-hmm. changed the way Christian singles looked at dating and maybe people got married a little quicker and dated a little bit less. And Were you a product of, uh, of I was Mr. on Harris? the later side of it, oh. yeah. I definitely used that book to try to figure out how to communicate dating because I was a young college pastor at sure. the time, so that was one of the things I would teach people is don't, you know, don't flirt around, don't be a flirt, you know, that whatever. So anyhow. Keep going. This is your story. (laughs) No, we we get to have a conversation. We're going back and forth. Oh, Joshua. So mom, back to your mom and the conversations that you guys were having, reconciling. You know, honestly, a lot of the conversations with my parents that have been harder have come later. Um, And that's something, though, that we continue to still be in relationship. And um, my parents uh, are still here. They gave me full permission to say whatever I wanted to say. Um, but my heart with the book was that every person who was in that story, I mean, anybody who appears in a book has to sign off. It's called libel if they don't. Um, but I wanted to honor every person. And Mm -hmm. so really I focused on the dads. Um, really it's a love story. And so James and I are in it. Um, and so are our children, but because it is a spiritual memoir, but as far as secondary characters, both of our fathers are featured in it quite a bit. Um, even more than um, my my uh, mother-in-law and my own mother. And, and that was pretty purposeful. But I wanted to honor both of the fathers. And, and honoring also um, means that they are well-rounded characters. And so as a former t- English teacher, you know, we, we would call a round character as someone who's not just perfect and, and good on the outside, but you're seeing all sides of who they are. And um, I think that's how it is for every character probably. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But in particular, so some of the um, some of the conversations really with with both my father-in-law and my father, there are hard conversations in there, mm-hmm. um, and and sometimes um, we we just talk about the weather. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we don't have those hard conversations, and sometimes we do. It can be exhausting if that's all the conversations are, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I I'm a firm believer that um, it it doesn't just have to be me. Yeah. 
who's having that conversation. Yeah. So sometimes, like I just talked to my dad two days ago. We talked about marbles because he makes marbles. Oh, that's an interesting, yeah. like for fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. We talked about the koi fish in his backyard. Uh-huh. He is, he's the epitome of retired. Um, we talked about how the koi fish are, um, I guess, koi hibernate. They're when, very stagnant in the winter, yeah, right? in they, the winter months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of, we're, we'll be up there in March, and we're hoping that <laughs> the boys will be able to feed the koi. Yeah. Um, we talked about how he's a deacon at the church now. So, you know, we talked about some good stuff. Yeah. We, we didn't talk about privilege. Yeah, right. Yeah. But when you first, so they met at a urinal, which I think is the fun <laughs> part of the story. Nice start. We're not <laughs> like, editing that out. You have to edit that. I, for, I forgot we were talking about the now defunct macaroni <laughs> at the grill. the macaroni grill. <laughs> macaroni. So the Bay Area is losing a lot of good places, macaroni grill. And oh. Chevys, they're slowly going oh, out. But really? so They have the best chips. They have the best chips. Mm. Um, but I will promote, this is an unpaid endorsement, Juanita's chips are now my favorite. Anyway, yeah. so your dad meets your James at the urinal. Absolutely. So... Uh, this, so we were sitting there, I was sitting there with my parents. My heart is, is, you know, just about beating out of my chest. Uh Um, this was a big moment. This is meet the parents. And, um, so James had called, you know, I, I think this was even before the days of being able to send a Siri text message when you're driving. Um, but James had called and he was stuck in traffic. He was going to be late. Um, so the three of us, my parents and I are sitting at this table. My dad goes to the bathroom and um, when he gets back, I said, I said, oh, James will be here really, really soon, guys. He'll be here really soon. And, and my dad goes, oh, he's here. I just mm-hmm. met him in the bathroom. <laughs> um, and I'm sure I wrote it better in the book. But <laughs> I was absolutely horrified. I'm like, dad, you did what? And he goes, he goes well, I, I just, you know, I just met him in the, black room, in the bathroom. I looked over. And at the urinal next to me was a very nice looking black man. <laughs> and I said, you must be James. <laughs> and he said, you must be Dan. And I, I sat there going, oh, my God. God, Dad, you did not. <laughs> Guys always talk at the urinals. Yeah, no big deal. Well, and that's what I said. I said, I said, Dad, men don't talk yeah. in the bathroom. And he goes, How Very would true. you know if men talk in the bathroom, Kara? So, um, indeed, my my father and my husband met in the urinals. It's perfect um, at the macaroni grill. I love and, it. And that story uh, is now public. Yeah, I love it. That's a great story. That's a great meeting story. There you go. Okay, so you guys produced these. Two little sons. How old are your kids? Let's hear about them. They are six and four now. Okay. Uh, so we have a kindergartner and a preschooler. We have two boys, Cannon and Theo. Uh, they are fire. They are um, alive. <laughs> they love dinosaurs. Um, they've got justice in their bones. Mm, love it. Um, they, yeah, they, they fight and they love each other. They try to get... Um, they try to get 100 kisses from mama and dada every single day. Is that a goal you put on them? Like, like hey, we they want own you. It. They do it. No. I, it's amazing. Um, the kisses are usually more, you know, I'm, I'm not kissing um, the boys at, at drop-off. But mm-hmm. what does it mean to love our kids and to give them what they want mm-hmm. and what they need more than what they want? Um, yeah, it is, it's, it is a privilege being a parent. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think I would have ever said that before becoming a parent, but I, I love these little dudes. And so exhausted. I have three daughters, so I have uh, eight, yeah. 10 and 12 almost. Yeah. And it's like the most, like, I feel most inadequate in life because of yeah. my parenting or yeah. lack of parenting skills and I feel so I- I- empowered like, and yeah. excited, but at the same time exhausted. It's mm-hmm. man, it's 
overwhelming, but you also Equal carry, parts. yeah. Mm-hmm. And you also carry this, which feels like kind of a drive in the book and your father-in-law does the forward and he talks about it on behalf of his grandson. Like mm-hmm. you kind of also take on this responsibility, not just as a parent of mm-hmm. these two humans, but of two little boys of mixed race, two boys of mm-hmm. color and knowing that our national history has not always lent kind to people of color in our country, it seems like that's an extra burden you're carrying, which I'd love you to talk about that because you also are pretty open about some of the things early on that came from being a parent of Mm -hmm. two boys of color, like the the ignorance that people called you out on. And I'd love Mm -hmm. that you're candid about that. If you would talk about that, I think that'd be cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mine is a journey. Um, Over and over again, we've said that I am not, we as in my publisher and my agent and... Um, anyone who is who has been involved behind the scenes, but we've said I am not an expert on um, issues of justice, race, and privilege. I'm a fellow sojourner, um, and I think a, for a lot of us who grow up um, white or um, who were born with white skin, uh, we don't necessarily know how to engage in these conversations, and perhaps. Um, like you or um, like some of our listeners like me, um, I didn't think that issues of race had anything to do with me for a long time. Um, and so I then didn't talk about it, but I also didn't know how to talk about it. And in then hmm. meeting my husband and um, in, in giving birth to f- two beautiful boys, um, that has been part of my journey, is, has been realizing that this is part of my story. And so... You know, one of the things at the very beginning, when I was pregnant with Canon, um, I had uh, I was at uh, at that point I was leaving ministry. I was starting to um, I was starting to uh, pursue. I would say I was pursuing writing and speaking, but I was just entering in, and so I started at one point a blog, and um, and in it I would I would po- I would post these weekly updates about Canon's progress, and I called him our little Carmel, and I referred to um, my oldest son as a you know, as a, as a piece of candy mm. because I believed and, and he is now that his skin would be a tan caramel esque color. And I didn't really think anything of it. Likewise, uh, I started calling my husband because I thought it was pretty funny. Um, partially in reaction to, um, some, uh, some of the, uh, male pastoral folks who would get up on stage I love this. and, um, and call their, you know, just, <laughs> just call their wives, their hot wives. Yeah. Um, and essentially objectify yeah. their women. Yeah. Um, I said, okay, well, if you're going to call your smoking hot wife, <laughs> that's right. Smoking hot wife yeah, is I mean, the but, phrase, but right? I've heard it. Have you heard oh, it? Oh my gosh. I think I, I love the conversation. I yeah. love that people are calling out pastors for continually saying how hot their yeah. wife is. Like it's a yeah. thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a thing of objectification and yeah. it's a thing that is not promoting or helping the conversation yeah. when it comes to, um, when it comes to sexism yeah. in the church. Um, and that's an entirely different conversation. It's an entirely different conversation <laughs> that I would love to have. And we, we, so we, next week, yeah, I'm going to say, <laughs> we have, we have to have these little things because I've admitted uh, on this podcast, just how I have taken some of the teachings and we're going to get back to your blog thing, but taking these teachings from good intention people who yeah. communicate like your wife needs to feel loved and you need to woo her. And like, I, I want to do that. I want my wife to feel loved. And so calling her a smoking hot wife in public is what I was, what I'm taught. Like she wants yeah. to hear, she wants to feel singled out, and, but that's actually the reverse and it's causing mm-hmm. damage and like, ah, so I love the conversation, yeah. but you were experiencing yeah. this through your blog and through yeah. your kids. And 
Yeah. So I, um, so I, I started calling my children, uh, and later our second son, Theo, I started calling them my little caramels. And I thought, well, this is a way, uh, it's a way to show people that even as a white person that I, understand uh-huh. issues of race, that I'm engaged sure. in the conversation because I'm not afraid to call it like it is. And um, you called your husband. I called my husband the HBH, HBH. the hot black husband, and, and he knew I was doing it, and yeah. he kind of rolled his eyes at first. Uh-huh. Um, but I said, oh, same thing. This is a way to protect their identities, but it's also a way to further the conversation. Uh-huh. And I would use this in, um, primarily, I would use this in my bios uh, if, I, if I was writing elsewhere on the internets, um, or I would, I would use that in my blog. Um, and then eventually along the way I started, um, I started doing some podcasts. I was a co-host on a podcast a couple years ago and the main host who is a black woman, she and I both started referring to my husband as the HBH. Mm. And, um, that was the point of finally realizing that that was not okay was when one of our listeners, one of our readers contacted both of us and said, do you realize what you're doing Mm -hmm. when you are um, calling Kara's husband this, when both of you are calling him this on air? Mm -hmm. Um, This is not helping the conversation any. Mm -hmm. And I remember just going, wait a minute, if I really want to... um, actually honor um, the lives of every single human, including my black and brown brothers and sisters, including the man I love more than anyone, then I have to stop. Mm. Because as my husband later said, his only comment was, yeah, this isn't really helping the conversation any. So, th- so was that a pretty quick response for me? Did you feel like, whoa, like you got that r- readers or that? Literally the, the, the reader emailed uh-huh. Uh, I talked about it with my co-host friend, um, and I put something up on the blog that night wow. and, um, a, a public apology, which needed to happen. Um, and that was probably one of the most, I, the blog is now defunct, but, um, that was one of the probably five most read blog posts and shared blog posts wow. of anything. I think that is so huge. And in our time and space, I'm always leaning in and drawn to people who can say, because we're, we're growing and we're learning more and more about ourselves, about people, about humanity. Mm-hmm. And to be able to step back and say, gosh, you know what? I did, I made a mistake here and I'm sorry for it. It's so rare. So kudos yeah. to you for doing that and doing it quickly without, are you cold? Yeah. Cause she's over here freezing. Here. Uh, maybe I need to, uh, to go and check out in the heat, but I, I will do that in a second. It's okay. Um, your, like your example I think is really admirable because I don't see a lot of people doing it. And sometimes it's, it happens after uh, way too long and someone's called out, there's a bunch of defensiveness. And sometimes there's even like the opposite response of saying, stop being offended. You're, you're too sensitive. And so I really appreciate that seeing that modeled, I think is, is really important. Which Thank feels you. like that's driving a little bit of your your work here, yeah. like teaching people like to be sensitive. Um, you have obviously encountered challenges being a an interracial couple, mm-hmm. and you address some of that in the book. Do you want to talk about some of those things? Just like how we can be better at uh, at learning to um, ask our questions or or not, or make our comments or not. Like I think you have some good good wisdom to share. Absolutely, yeah. One of the things that I really wanted to do in the book that we really wanted to do was, um, was explore 
different ideas when it came to interracial marriage and interracial relationships. There's really not a ton that has been written about that. Uh, and yet, statistically speaking, um, there are, I mean, there are the rate of interracial marriages is growing every yeah. single year. California, um, I, w- I think it's 20% of marriages in California are interracial now. Um, so we really wanted to look at that and explore that as a, as, as a mother, I really wanted to explore um, what it means um, to dialogue about raising mixed race children. Um, I think, uh, and this also is another conversation, but um, I think there's, there continues to be a lot of ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, on behalf of well-intentioned white people, especially, mm. um, whether we're talking about um, adoption circles sometimes, um, whether we're talking um, simply about the the product of interracial relationships, um, but what does it mean, particularly with kids of color, um, for us to understand um, to understand our responsibility? And understanding our responsibility is understanding. Um, sometimes understanding the whiteness that we have actively participated in and benefited from. And um, so when I talk about the conversations, when I talk about different chapters in the book, and I know I'm I'm speaking um, in a circle right now, so I'm not even actually addressing your question, um, but there's a grave responsibility for me and for Tony and especially for our listeners who identify as white to listen mm-hmm. and learn and listen some more. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's part of decentering whiteness. This podcast, and I think even the work of Brave Maker in our film gatherings, uh, I was just thinking about this today. Like, what problem are we trying to solve here? And I was thinking, one of the problems I want to solve is the problem of ignorance. I want to I wanna create opportunities for people to hear stories mm-hmm. so that they could learn and be in the know. And when it comes to race, when it comes to gender, when it comes to sexuality, there's so much ignorance. And I, I will admit, like when I was reading in the book, uh, you know, people who have approached you and have maybe said something like, are those yours or something to that effect? Maybe you can comment. I forget yeah. exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I know I remember having a completely awkward conversation with someone who I hadn't seen in a while mm-hmm. that I did not know married a white woman that I worked at a camp with that married a black man. I had no idea. Yeah. I see her holding this boy and I'm like, oh, who's this? She's like, this is my son. And I remember saying something like, your son, like, I had no idea. Like, did you yeah. adopt? Like, you know, and I remember going, no, like his father's black. I mean, I remember going, oh my gosh, that's like the worst thing I could have possibly said. How could I handle that differently? But it just came out of me and I mm-hmm. felt so embarrassed, like asking if someone was pregnant and they're not, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So uh, any thoughts on that? Like, how do we get better? How do we not be ignorant? Yeah. Well, we, we start again by listening and learning and listening some more. Um, I, at the back of my book, I have a list of um, recommended readings, and I'll just flip to yeah, it now, and listen. I won't read every single one of those, but um, there's four different sections. So what does it mean to listen and learn when it comes to exploring race and justice in America? Um, there's my favorite book, hands down, will always be Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a number of books that are all, that are right there that are all by, that have all been written by people of color. Mm-hmm. And especially for those of us, for your white listeners, 
um, we we need to start noticing who we are and aren't listening to. Mm-hmm. Um, so if Tony's podcast is the only podcast that you listen to, <laughs> maybe um, go and find a podcast like Pass the Mic mm-hmm. um, with uh, Jamar Tisby. I'm going to be doing an event with him in um, April. He's a phenomenal prophetic voice. He just came out with a book a couple weeks ago. We're with the same publisher. Um, his is The Color of Compromise. Are you kidding me? I feel like they should have figured this out beforehand. And yours is the color of life. Yes, FYI. Um, life is a lot more exciting than yes, compromise, maybe. Yes. Yeah. So, but check out Jamar's book. Um, but all that to say, we we have to start noticing who is influencing our lives. So, you know, for Tony on this podcast, you had a white woman here today. Um, you maybe for next week or whenever the next one airs, you actively seek out a person of color Mm -hmm. to counterbalance this. So we, we notice who we're giving power to Mm -hmm. when it comes to me with writing, um, with, with the editors I work with, I actively hand over voices of color who need to be featured because especially if we're looking at the spiritual or Christian market, it is dominated by white voices. Mm -hmm. And so if, if we're continuing to promote that, then we're continuing to promote a particular idea. Um, within, um, or a particular norm, maybe is a better way to say it, recommended reading the other three sections, working toward justice and healing in the church, which might might be for some of your listeners, um, embracing new narratives of history. Um, This was certainly one of my favorites, but I tried to include a a ton in the book about history. And it's about the history that, um, you know, for me, I think for a long time, I thought, well, I sure, I study this in February for Black History Month. Um, oh, yeah, but this it is goes, Black History Month. Yeah, February. Yeah, perfect. Is. But it goes in one ear and out the other because mm. I'm, I am privileged enough, if we're going to use that word, um, to not have to remember um, past the test. And so, for instance, when it came to my father-in-law, um, my father-in-law is a man named James Meredith, and he was the first black man to integrate into the University of Mississippi in 62. Then four years later, his other famous historical um, moment, um, he created the Meredith March Against Fear. I talk quite about this in the very last chapter. Um, but on the second day, he was shot by a white supremacist. And from that, Martin Luther King Jr., Stokely Carmichael, other leaders of the civil rights movement came around him. And they said, we're going to we're going to march for you because he was then in the hospital. Mm. But he did not die. He did not die. He is still living. Um, And he, uh, modern day chapters or modern day encounters with him are also featured in the book. Um, But from that, the Meredith March Against Fear, which was intended as a single man's walk um, to, uh, to march against, or a single man's march, excuse me, to march against um, the fear existent in African-American voters um, for not wanting to still cast their vote turned into what historians call the last greatest protest march of the civil rights movement. So it was one of the last acts of the movement. It's also when the black power movement birthed. Mm. So Stokely Carmichael in this 30 day uh, time period in the month of June, 1966, that's when the black power movement birthed. That's also when Dr. King kind of began exploring some other um, avenues and some would say that he, he started to lose ground. Although obviously we don't, Dr. King never lost ground, mm-hmm. but, um, but what does it mean to embrace new narratives of history? And that for me, I wanted to mm-hmm. tell the stories, not again as an expert, but as a sojourner and mm-hmm. tell them in storytelling form yep. um, because there are so many incredible books that people can look at. Um, the last recommended reading se- section is particularly for white readers, but understanding the privilege of whiteness. Yep. 
Um, and with that, there's there's a ton of great authors, both um, Christian and secular, who are who are who have written about this. Daniel Hill has um, become a dear friend. White Awake is one of my favorite books. Um, likewise, Ken Wetsema, he ended up endorsing the book, but the myth of equality. Um, Debbie Irving's Waking Up White, What Does It Mean to Be White? Um, by Robin DiAngelo, who's kind of the queen of um, talking about whiteness. So we will put a lot of those in the show notes, but you should go and get this book, The Color of Life. Is it? When does it actually come out? Oh, Tony, it came out a week ago. It did, February okay. 5th, 2019. Awesome. So, so it is out. Yes. Perfect. Black available. History Month, available yeah. on all places you can find your books. Color Absolutely. of Life. We'll put an Amazon link in the show notes. Uh, can we end with this? You have this analogy in the book about compassion and justice, about yeah. the river. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you could share that. And uh, was that original to you? I don't know, but I was like, I loved it. The idea of like compassion is pulling the people out. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, it's actually from David Crowder. So I cite him. Oh, at that's the right. End. You were at a concert. Mm-hmm. You're at a concert with him. Yep. Uh, you know, years ago, um, I was at a David Crowder concert in the city. I think we were at the Fillmore. I was with a girlfriend, and we're we're um, moving our bodies for Jesus and worshiping. And um, and I remember him getting up on stage or stopping to speak at one point, and he was talking about um, compassion, and um, he was talking about justice, and he said something to the effect of. Um, compassion is, uh, you know, is standing on the shore of the river and pulling people out of the river. Um, justice is going upstream and seeing who is throwing people into the river. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that is, that is so much of what we get to do is yes, maybe initially we, we confront with compassion and I've had people who have disagreed with this. Um, you know, I had one woman who works for compassion international and she said, care, that's, uh, that's, I think you're actually getting it wrong. And I said, well, there it's a both and it is, yeah, it we is need both. having, yeah, it is having compassion in the moment. And it is also saying what is going on upstream mm-hmm. and whatever is going on upstream that is affecting those whom we are then pulling out. And so we have to look at um, what is going on upstream when it comes to our educational systems. We have to look at the upstream movement when it comes to our churches. We have to look at the upstream movement, even when it comes to, um, again, the voices that we are letting influence us. And so um, we have to start looking upstream. Maybe that's part and parcel of what real justice is, because it's not something that's just halfway around the world that we write a check um, and send money toward. It's happening in our own backyards. Where can people find you on social? Yep. Uh, Social media, you can go to my website, caramerideth.com. Otherwise, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Facebook at Kara Meredith writes, and then I'm on Twitter at Caramac 54. So reach out to Kara. Please let her know what you thought of this conversation. Please buy her book. And I love this. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I'm sorry the air conditioning, I think, was on. I don't know, because I'm, I'm fine, but she's sweater. frigid. She's over here freezing. You're in a sweater and a scarf. <laughs> I am in a short sleeve shirt. And it's I would February like in California. Out. This is just life. We don't know how this we're going to deal. This is the polar this vortex. Is, this is what we deal with. It is horrible. Hey, thanks for being a guest on Holy Cannoli. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Holy Cannoli Podcast is a proud production of Brave Maker Media. For more information or to donate, go to bravemaker.com to make your tax-deductible donation today. 
Thanks for listening to Holy Cannoli. If you liked my dad's podcast, please subscribe, give it a review, and share it with someone you think would be encouraged by it.